What a blessing to, to be here and to have a warm building in which to meet. A um, few announcements in your bulletin that I would highlight this morning. Um, one that's not in the announcement bulletin, our ninth and 10th grade catechism class. Um, we're going to meet with the adult Sunday school. Um, the adult Sunday school was, well, that, this is not planned, but uh, Steve's under the weather today, and, and we have an interesting topic to deal with, so we're going to do it together with the adult Sunday school class. A um, couple of things just to highlight from the announcement bulletin. Uh, we do have an office bearer training tomorrow. Um, don't be scared off by the subject matter, which sounds boring. We're going to talk about the church order, but it really isn't boring. It's, it's actually um, rather interesting because our church order is set up in a way that's distinct from many church orders, and, uh, and I think a bit more biblically. Um, this evening, after the evening worship service, I'd ask all adult nursery volunteers to meet briefly uh, in the sanctuary. And then uh, if you could put on your, your calendar the pancake dinner, not this coming Wednesday, but the following Wednesday that the cadets are holding, that should be an enjoyable time. Um, and then looking beyond our congregation, do take note of the memorial procession this afternoon um, in Grand Rapids the, uh, and the upcoming talk on Eastern Orthodoxy uh, that's going to be held at Dutton, Lord willing, on the 27th. And uh, that should be interesting. You might wonder, what, what does Eastern Orthodoxy have to do with me? Why would I care about that? But um, it's surprising sometimes how that appeals to people, the particular distinctives of Eastern Orthodoxy. And it's not like just changing churches. There are substantial theological differences between us and them. So bear that in mind. And then... Uh, do take note of the Samaritan's Purse shoebox ministry update. That's really encouraging. Beloved, we have the opportunity to gather in God's presence and worship. Let's ask for his blessing on this time, that God would make it pleasing to him and that he would allow us to focus our hearts upon him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the rich privilege of worship. Because we do it relatively often, we're tempted to take it for granted and consider it commonplace. But in fact, this is the most special and most unique time of our week. Help us to recognize that, Lord, and enable us to focus our hearts upon you. Work in us in a way that draws us close to you. And Father, we pray that in all of this, your name would be glorified and lifted on high. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Let's stand together. <clears throat> the Lord calls us this morning to worship with these words from First Chronicles chapter 16. 
O give thanks to the Lord and call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. And let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. Hear now His greeting. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's sing praise together to Him for this day of rest as we sing number 322. Number 322. Hebrews 7 reminds us that we have been given something greater than Israel was given. Israel was given so, such amazing promises, such amazing blessings. They were chosen from out of all the nations of mankind. They were given the assurance that they would be a priestly people and that God Himself would dwell among them. They were given signs and symbols that demonstrated God's covenant promise to reconcile them to Himself, to draw them near, to make them His unique people. And yet, what we have is greater. 
Hebrews tells us the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession to them or for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. In other words, we have the perfect high priest. All that Israel looked forward to, all the promises that they embraced warmly from a distance, for us have been brought near and fulfilled. That's amazing. That is an amazing gift that we've been given. And it urges us, that gift, to express our confidence in the one whom God sent. To express our confidence in the one by whom He fulfilled all His promises. So let's do that, confessing that our faith is not in ourselves, it's not in tradition, it's in Christ who fulfilled all of God's promises. As we sing together, number 53... We'll sing the first four stanzas and then stanza 11 of 53.
because He has delivered us, because our hope is in Him, we have the calling and the privilege to live before Him a life filled with gratitude. And to enable us to do that, God gave His law. So that we might each day strive to put to death the old man of sin, the old man who was addicted to the flesh, and to bring to life the new man created in righteousness and holiness after the image of Christ. And so God says to us, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, nor your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That law can easily be summarized by noting that we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and with all our strength. This, said Jesus, is the first and the great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Beloved, we can only do that by the power of God within us, leading us to respond to what Christ has done. And so we come before Him in prayer, asking for His help. Uh, in addition, uh, a few other prayer concerns. One uh, is for Bruce and Linda Smith as they mourn the death of Bruce, Bruce's sister, Debbie Shanklin. Um, in addition, we have a, a note in our announcement bulletin concerning the need to keep in prayer uh, abortion in our land. Um, this coming week will mark the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision that um, effectively legalized abortion throughout our nation. And, uh, you know, right now we have a, a course pend, uh, a case pending at the Supreme Court that could potentially change the landscape. That's wonderful. But it won't come through, nor will it make a difference 
If God is not at work, first of all, to move the hearts of those judges and of the state legislators who then would have to act, but more especially, it won't make a bit of difference if God doesn't change the hearts of the people of our nation. And so we need to be praying for the heart of this nation, far more than than laws or court cases, though those are important. Ultimately, we need to be praying that God will change the hearts of our people. Um, And then finally, if you saw the news this morning, um, there are many coastal areas um, experiencing the effect of tsunamis after an underwater volcano explosion near Tonga in the Pacific. Um, And and those are always dangerous because they they come relatively unheralded and inundate the coastal areas. So please pray for that. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, You have given us gifts and assurances and confidence that are greater than anything this world could hope to offer. And yet, in our weakness, in our short-sightedness, we're tempted to focus on the things of the world and the things of the flesh. We're tempted to, to give our hearts to things that are passing and will depart in a moment. Father, forgive us and enable us to turn our hearts to that which is eternal and good and secure in the heavens because of You. Enable us to take up daily the assurance that You've given us that Jesus has fulfilled everything necessary to reconcile us to You. And that we therefore have the privilege to live a life of gratitude. Grant that that realization might transform all of our life. Making us, making us to be focused on you. In the way that we speak, in the things that we desire, in the relationships that we cultivate, in the way that we face hard things. Lord, enable us to evaluate our lives regularly in the light of Your law. Removing from ourselves all that is hateful to You, all that is rebellious against You, all that does not speak of love for You. And fill our lives, Lord, with demonstrations of Your love. With demonstrations that we are Yours and that we are committed to You. Enable us to speak and act toward those around us in such a way that they would see in us the character of Your Son. And that they would want to know the reason for that. And Lord, give us the boldness and the courage and the love for You and for our neighbor to be able to tell them about the comfort that we have in Christ. Lord, we pray for our nation that many might come to ask those questions. We grieve over the the wickedness of abortion and the infants who have been destroyed, whose lives have ended when they had barely begun because of the hardness of heart of our nation and because your church has too often not reached out 
to those who were in need and who saw nowhere to turn. Father, we pray that You would turn the hearts of this nation. That those who have been hardened against You, who have come to see the murder of children as a commonplace thing, even a right to be celebrated, that they would see the wickedness of that worldview. That they would see the ugliness of the acts that they're perpetuating. And that they would turn in repentance and in grief. And Lord, we pray that You would prepare the hearts of many to hear and receive the Gospel. And Lord, grant that we, Your church, rather than simply shaking our fingers and our fists, would show the love of Christ to those who know nothing but desperation and emptiness. Enable us, Lord, to step out in faith in the difficult work of of fostering children whose parents were unable or unwilling to care for them, of adopting those whom perhaps we did not expect to adopt, welcoming into our homes, into our lives, the complexities and the difficulties and the trials that often come with, with children who've grown up in difficult situations. And help us in all of this to show the love of Christ that has been shown to us. Lord, make us to be bold, trusting You to work out all the details, to work out all of the the trials, so that we can welcome with the love of Christ the orphan and the widow and the lonely and the desperate. And so, Lord, to show forth Your love in a powerful and concrete way. Lord, we pray for our Supreme Court as they face what should be a very simple decision to recognize that the so-called right to abortion that was enthroned in our land in 1973 was a lie made up of whole cloth that finds no home, no foundation, either in our Constitution or in Your holy law. Enable them to have the courage to confess before all the world that it was a lie. That there is no right to kill those who have not yet been born. And that it is a wickedness and a perversion of justice to claim that this is acceptable. Give our legislatures the courage to pass laws condemning that. And to pass laws that shouldn't even need to be passed. Acknowledging the wickedness and the the murderousness of any physician who has vowed to uphold and protect life, who then uses his skills and his gifts to destroy innocent life. Life that, that has done nothing worthy of death by man. And Father, we pray that You would Cause your people to establish and strengthen the mechanisms to reach out to those who are desperate and to show them that there is hope, that there is help, that there are people who will be there with them, walking beside them, so that they need not feel so desperate. And Father, we pray for the other needs 
within our nation, within our world, that leave people desperate. We think of these tsunamis that are racing across the ocean, crashing, often unsuspecting, into the shoreline. Lord, it's an image of our lives, isn't it? Because so many multitudes live in willful ignorance of the judgment that is rapidly descending upon them, pretending that they themselves are sovereign and that they have no need to fear. But meanwhile, the day of their death, the day of their judgment races toward them. Lord, even as we pray that You would protect and preserve the lives and the livelihoods of those who are facing tsunamis, and who have been impacted by them in the last 12 hours or so. We pray too, Lord, that You would work in the hearts and lives of many who are yet unprepared, that they might be prepared for the judgment by turning to Christ. And Lord, we pray for the people of this congregation. Lord, we ask that You would bless Bruce and Linda, as well as others in our midst who are grieving, and we ask that You would provide the sure comfort that comes from Christ. We pray for Brian as he continues to recover from the pain of cracked ribs. We pray for members in our midst who have been suffering with the effects of COVID. We pray for those with longer term medical needs, for Dan and for Jamie as they both receive treatments for cancer. For Linda as she receives treatment for her sores and looks forward to uh, surgery. We pray for Sherry as she continues seeking strength and uh, recovery from her ailments. We pray for others in our midst to deal with long-term pain, uh, other issues, many of which we don't even see or hear. Those who struggle with depression, those who wrestle with doubts, those who have turmoil within their family lives. Those who are, are filled with quiet desperation. Lord, we pray that You would provide the comfort and the strength that each one needs, which only You are able to grant. We pray for our shut-in members, those who long to be in worship but who cannot be, that You would encourage and strengthen them. We pray for the spouses of those who are suffering with various ailments, that they would be refreshed and that they would be able to provide refreshment. We pray for those preparing for marriage, that they would prepare with earnestness, but with joy. We pray for our pregnant members, that you would preserve those children within and encourage their mothers in the, the midst of discomfort. We pray for those undergoing the adoption process, that that would go smoothly and well. We pray for our children and our young people and young adults who are in schooling. We pray, Father, that You would enable them to learn about this world with submission to You, acknowledging that You are the sovereign over it all. And Lord, as we prepare to look to Your Word, enable us by it to be drawn closer to You, to find our faith in You strengthened, to be built up and encouraged by it. 
And Father, we pray that in all of this day, You would lead us not only to rest from the labor of our hands, from the daily work that so often consumes us, but also from the fears and the doubts, from the the racing around and the busyness, from the grief and the sadness. Enable us to rest in You, to rejoice in You, to celebrate Your goodness and Your grace. And so to be refreshed that as we enter into the work week, we might do so with deepened faith and with a joy that flows from you. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to look to God's Word, um, as it's summarized in our confession of faith, let's stand and sing together number 90 in our Psalter hymnal. Number 90. A rendering of Psalm 49 will sing all the stanzas. Well, our confessional reading this morning is going to be from Article 19 of our Belgic Confession. But first, I'd like to read with you from Hebrews 
chapter 9. I mentioned recently Hebrews was written to folks who had turned to Christ, having grown up as Jews, and now they're tempted to turn back to the the ceremonies and the sacraments and the rituals of Judaism. And the Apostle is arguing that that would be foolish. That's like going back to anticipating a great gift rather than enjoying the gift itself. And chapter 9 focuses on the priestly aspect of the promises Israel sought and, and believed in, which Christ fulfilled. He says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary that the copies of the heavenly things, for the the copies of the heavenly things, to be purified with these rites but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. 
For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Amen. Now, Article 19 of our Confession echoes the truths that we find there by saying that we believe that this conception, or by this conception, the person of the Son is inseparably united and connected with the human nature. So that there are not two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures united in one single person. Yet each nature retains its own distinct properties. As then the divine nature has always remained uncreated, without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth, so also has the human nature not lost its properties, but remained a creature, having beginning of days, being a finite nature, retaining all the properties of a real body. And though he has, by his resurrection, given immortality to the same, nonetheless he's not changed the reality of his human nature. For as much as our salvation and resurrection also depend on the reality of his body. But because these two natures are so closely united in one person that they were not separated even by his death, therefore that which he, when dying, commended into the hands of his father was a real human spirit departing from his body. But in the meantime, the divine nature always remained united with the human, even when he lay in the grave. And the Godhead did not cease to be in him any more than it did when he was an infant, though it did not so clearly manifest itself for a while. Wherefore, we confess that Jesus is very God and very man, very God by his power to conquer death and very man that he might die for us according to the infirmity of his flesh. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, as our confession of faith progresses on through the doctrines about Christ, it moves steadily inward. It begins abstract, it trends toward the concrete. It begins in theoretical, uh, theoretical doctrines, it, it ends in practical doctrines. It begins in the concept, it brings us into reality. Our confession began approaching the truth about our Savior by showing how extensive is our need. In Adam, we all became guilty of sin and we all became so corrupt that we could not not sin. In ourselves, it showed us we have no hope of escaping our sin and its consequences. But then we saw that God made a decree. From among that mass of self-condemned mankind, He was going to save for himself, the elect, those whom he chose. However, that's somewhat abstract, isn't it? It's not something, election is not something we can see and touch. So then the confession moves on to speak of the covenant. Now we get into something that's more concrete, something that's more real. In the covenant, God brings a people to himself who can be seen, who gather for worship, who have office bearers over them, and to that people is promised the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, adoption as children. That's more concrete. These promises enter into the time and the realm of man, but still promises are words, right? They're not actions, they're not results. The promise is different from the thing which is promised. And so the confession then 
begins talking about how God acted to fulfill those promises, to bring about what was promised. Last time we saw how He brought forth a person who would be ordained to fulfill those covenant promises and to redeem those whom He elected. Today we come even closer, zooming in to see what makes this person who was born, what makes him special? What is his nature? What is his role? What enables him uniquely to fulfill those promises on which we rest? And as we zoom in, we see that this someone is precisely like us, but also precisely different. And that's what makes him unique. That's what makes him able to fulfill those promises upon which all eternity rests for us. What we see in article 19 is that Jesus came as the perfect substitute that enables us to be saved. The perfect substitute that fulfills God's promises. The perfect substitute that brings to fruition all that the covenant promises. Jesus came as our perfect substitute. But to do that, the first thing he had to be was a true man who therefore could sacrifice for men. So that's the first thing we need to see. In order to be our perfect substitute, he had to be a true man who could sacrifice for men. Remember what God promised us in his covenant of grace. He promised to establish a relationship with us. Sin had separated us from God, but but the Lord promised to fix that. He would do what was necessary to take those who were far off in their sin, those who were separated from Him, and draw them close and establish peace with them. That meant that He would have to deal with our sin. Sin made us worthy of death and of God's eternal wrath. And so God would have to deal with those consequences and remove them from us. And then He would adopt us as children. Having gotten rid of the roadblock of sin, He would bring us so close that we would be able to regard Him as our Father. And He would regard us as His sons and daughters. Well, if that's to happen for us, right? if we're to be reconciled, if sin is to be addressed, if we're to have adoption, then we need everything that God showed in the Old Testament. That's what all of those sacrifices, those rites, those uh, ceremonial laws, that's what they were all about. They were a vivid demonstration of how God would fulfill the covenant. And one of the big things that the Old Testament showed us was our need for atonement. Kids, do you know what that word means? Atonement? It means that someone pays the price to get rid of our sin. Right? Someone pays what we owe to remove the punishment from us because our God is just, right? He is the standard of justice. And because He's just, He can't simply ignore our disobedience, our rebellion. There's a price for that. And that price has to be paid. The price is death. God told Adam at the very beginning, in the day that you sin, you will die. And that's what happened to Adam. In that day, he was separated from God. That was spiritual death. And ultimately, his body followed, being removed from fellowship with man. Right? That's the cost of sin, is death. 
If we're to receive the promises of the covenant, then we need atonement. Someone has to pay for our sin by dying for us on our behalf. We heard in Hebrews 9 verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That means we need two things. We need a sacrifice who will die on our behalf, and we need someone to present that sacrifice to God for us. And that's what God was showing us in the, in the worship of the Old Testament. Think back to what we, read, what we read here and what we've read previously about worship in the tabernacle. What happened when worship in the tabernacle later in the temple happened? First, a priest would bring forth... The first thing you encountered in, in the temple, really, was the altar, right? So the priest would go with this animal. And this animal would be representative of Israel. Over him would be confessed the sins, either of all the people or of particular people who brought this particular animal. And then that animal would be killed because of their sin. Its blood would be poured out because of their rebellion. Its body would be broken and burned on the altar, and the blood would be presented to God as symbolic of that which would cover over the guilt of our sin, that which would cleanse us of our sin. But here's the thing, that was all symbolic. It didn't actually accomplish what it pointed to. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And that's why Hebrews 9 was so clear that we needed something better. In verse 9 it says that this is symbolic for the present age. Gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. What was offered back then, it, it pointed to what would be effective, but it itself was not effective. We need the better sacrifice. Now, what would make the sacrifice better? The blood of bulls and goats won't work because bulls and goats weren't what sin men were. Today in our world, young people, we're told that the only difference between men and animals is that animals don't destroy the world. Men are slandered, they're smeared, they're regarded as inferior to the other creatures. But in fact, Man was created uniquely to be above the other creatures, to be uniquely, qualitatively better than the other creatures, because while they're wonderful, while they have amazing abilities and insights, and well, not insights, abilities and, and uh, ways that they reflect the truth and the being of God, only man, only man was made to bear the image of God Himself. Only man was made to exercise authority on God's behalf. Man is absolutely, qualitatively unique. And so when man sinned, that was a unique act of, act of rebellion. And only the death of a man could pay for that. Because animals are lesser beings. They don't have the value, they don't have the ability that man had. So if we're to have a substitute die for us, he has to be a man, but not merely a man. He has to be a perfect man for two reasons. For one thing, those sacrifices in the Old Testament, 
they had to be perfect, right? You couldn't look look over your, your flock of sheep and say, you know what? That one always had a limp. It's just not quite right. Let's just sacrifice that one, get rid of it. That way its genetics won't affect the herd or the flock. But you didn't do that. You didn't uh, present to God something that was less than perfect. You took the best of the flock, the best of the herd. It had to be perfect, and that was symbolic for, for the sacrifice we need. The one who is sacrificed on our behalf had to be perfect, not just physically, but spiritually. Having no sin, having no rebellion, never having gone against God. Because if, if he had sinned, if our sub substitute had rebelled, then he would be worthy of death himself. You can't pay the debt for someone else when you have that same debt yourself, right? You have to be without debt. You have to be perfectly sufficient of yourself. And there's only ever been one. And that's Jesus. In John 1, we're told that He became flesh and dwelt among us. That means Jesus had the same kind of body that you do. The same kind of soul that you do. The same kind of birth that you had was sustained by the same biological processes that sustain you moment by moment and day by day. We heard last time in Hebrews 2, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Nor was his identity with us limited to the physical. In verse 17 of chapter 2, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In every respect. Physically and spiritually and experientially. He had to face the same kind of temptations we face. He had to endure the same kinds of grief that we endure. He had to know the same kind of struggles, the same disappointments, the same grief, and the same joy. He had to go through all of it, body and soul, throughout his life, so that he would perfectly sympathize with us, so that he would be one of us, the only difference being that he could never sin, and that was Jesus. He was the perfect representative, which means that he could be the perfect sacrifice. The problem then is we need someone, not only as our perfect sacrifice, we also need someone who could bring that sacrifice into the presence of God. God showed his people that need by giving them the priesthood. Every day, the priests brought sacrifices before the Lord to atone for sin. Every year, the priests brought the blood of a sacrifice into the most holy place, symbolizing what would need to happen, that the, the perfect sacrifice would have to be brought into the very presence of God to atone for our sin. It couldn't be done from afar. It couldn't be mailed in. Problem was, the priests of old Israel were merely men. Like the men they served, they also needed atonement. They were just as flawed, just as corrupt, just as guilty as the rest of mankind. And therefore, they couldn't truly enter into, they couldn't enter into God's presence. They couldn't even enter into the model of God's presence on their own. Understand, on the Day of Atonement, there was this complex process where the priest first had to come and make a sacrifice for himself and for his fellow priests. And then he had to take a, incense and put it in a censer, which was a, a thing that held coals. You put this censer in and it would make smoke. And he would put this incense on this, in the censer and 
use it to fill the most holy place with smoke so that he would be hidden from sight in his sin so that he could bring in blood before the the throne of God, the representative of the throne of God, and make atonement for himself. And only then could he go out and kill another animal on behalf of the people and bring its blood into the most holy place. And that was just for entering into the model of God's throne room. How much less could one of those priests enter into the true throne room of God in heaven? It couldn't happen. But that's the other role Jesus came to fulfill. He came as the true God to save men. Our confession says Jesus' human nature was inseparably united and connected with the divine nature. And so the Bible testifies that Jesus was and is truly and fully God. We hear it in John 1. He became he who became flesh and dwelt among us, he was with God and was God and was in the begin was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. He was the light of men. Jesus is truly and fully God. And because He is God, He had the power to sustain the wrath of God and still overcome it. And come back from death. And then, having sustained death, having sacrificed Himself to enter fully into the presence of God in heaven, He could do what the former priests could not. Entering not just into the most holy place, you know, he's the only one who ever could have walked into that most holy place without sacrificing for himself first. But he did more than that. At his ascension, he went into heaven itself to present his own blood, his own sacrifice for our atonement. We heard Hebrews 9, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places. He didn't just go to the temple in Jerusalem. He went to heaven, to where God truly and fully dwells. Verses 25 and 26 add, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But no, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. In this way, says verse 12, He entered once for all into the holy places. And verse 14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Beloved, Jesus Christ is the only high priest who could have done that. He's the one we perfectly needed. Because He was able to enter God's presence for us. He was able to offer the sacrifice we need. He's the priest who never sinned, who never dies, who never ceases to pray to God for us. We heard it in Hebrews 7.26. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And folks, He has come. He has done Precisely what we needed. He offered the sacrifice. He brought it to God. He atoned for our sins. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, indicating that the perfect sacrifice had been brought and that nothing further was required. And now He sits at God's right hand, mediating for us. And that's the last thing we need to see here. Jesus 
He's not just the true man to sacrifice for men. He's not merely, as great as it is, He's not merely the true God who is able to save men. He's also the perfect mediator between God and man. See, this is what truly stands at the heart of the Christian faith. Our faith. One of the downsides to the rich blessings that we've had in this country of not having persecution, of having throughout the course of our brief history, most of our people identify themselves as Christians. The threat that comes with that, the danger that comes with that is we start to take it for granted. We start to see the faith as commonplace. We start to see it as simply part of our culture, part of our traditions, part of who we are as Americans. But Christianity is not about culture and tradition. It's not about living in a way that is more moral. It's not about getting our way politically or culturally or physically. No, it's not about emotions. It's not about what makes us feel good. What stands at the heart of the Christian faith is the work of the perfect mediator. A mediator is one who stands between God and man. He brings to man that which God has ordained for us to receive and he brings to God that which we need God to hear from us. Our prayers, our requests, our needs. Jesus is the one who was able to be that perfect mediator, restoring us to God and restoring that relationship that was broken by sin. He can only do that. He can only be that mediator because He's our perfect substitute. That's what the Bible testifies from start to finish about Jesus. He came as the substitute who is completely man. John 1 verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. We hear it in Philippians 2. Though He was in the form of God, He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men. His human nature, as our confession says, it's the same as ours. Having beginning of days, being a finite nature, retaining all the properties of a real body. What is true of your nature was and is true of His nature. And yet, having taken our human nature, He did not give up His divine nature. The one who was born a man is also the Word who was from eternity. That didn't change when He was born of Mary. Our confession reminds us that the divine nature of Jesus has always remained uncreated. He is without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth. The Godhead did not cease to be in Him even when He was on the cross, even when He was in the grave. So complete is that union between man and God in Jesus. That Jesus could say in John 14, right after, interestingly, right after he washed the feet of his disciples, he says to them, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
And then he adds, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, who dwells in me, does his work. Now how can that be? We can't comprehend it. Here's what the Bible tells us, clearly and unambiguously. Jesus was and is a single person, a single being. Jesus is unambiguously a man. To this, his birth by Mary testifies. So did the the words of the many who lived with him, talked with him, touched him. And yet, Jesus also unarguably is God. To that, his miraculous works testify, as do his resurrection from the dead and his physical ascension into heaven. The Bible gives clear evidence that Jesus is both man and God. There's no getting around that fact. Now, some have tried. The heretic Eutychus claimed that Jesus had a single combined nature that was not entirely human, was not entirely divine. It was entirely both and and therefore formed a, a third kind of being. The heretic Nestorius claimed that Jesus' natures were separate such that he could hardly even be called a single being. Meanwhile, the Apollinarians tried to segregate Jesus' humanity and divinity such that his body and soul were human, but his spirit was divine. But all of those ancient heresies fail to do justice to the absoluteness with which Scripture speaks. You cannot read the Bible and believe that Jesus was not truly God. I mean, Matthew 16, verse 16. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says that's exactly right. 1 John 5 verse 20, He's called true God and eternal life. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that He is the exact radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Those passages leave no room for saying that Jesus is anything less than fully God. And yet, at the same time, He was born of a woman. He ate and drank, he grew tired and slept, he suffered and died as his blood poured forth on the ground. Those who knew him, saw him, felt him, testified he was fully and completely human just like us. No room for anything but him to be completely man. He is the great two in one, the God-man. In him, both human and divine are complete neither nature being altered by the other, neither being overcome by the other, but both coexisting in the one man, Jesus. We can't comprehend it, we can't understand it, but we cannot deny it without denying the Scriptures themselves. Nor could we deny that without stripping Jesus of His role as mediator. Because it's only through that perfect union of natures that Jesus could stand between God and man for us. We read at the end of Hebrews 9, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, now no one else could do that. No one else could bear the sins of the many. But Jesus could, because He's both man and God. And therefore, according to 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Only Jesus could make us the righteousness of God. Only He could make us holy enough to enter God's presence. Now folks, we can't comprehend it. But we must believe it. 
We can't comprehend it, but we must confess it. Jesus is truly and fully man to sacrifice for our sin. He is truly and fully God to bring that sacrifice into the presence of the Father. And because He is both as one, He is our perfect mediator. Able to reconcile us to God. Able to overcome our sins in the sight of God. Able to make us the sons and daughters of God. That is what stands at the heart of our faith. And that is what must stand at the heart of our confession to one another. And to our children. And to a world that is watching and wondering what makes you different. It's this. It's that Jesus is our perfect substitute. To Him be all the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that You are our perfect substitute. That You have done everything that was necessary. And that there is nothing left for us to do but believe. Enable us to do so. And to confess boldly this wondrous work that You have accomplished. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us confess in song that which our confession reveals to us that Jesus paid it all. That there's nothing left for us to do, to accomplish, to earn in order to stand boldly before God. We do that singing from the, the handout that is in your pews. We'll sing all four stanzas.
Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You have provided so perfectly for us, both in body and soul. Not only did You send us Your Son to reconcile us, but You have sent every earthly or met every earthly need that we have. Father, we pray that You would receive now our tithes and our offerings as a demonstration of our gratitude. And Father, we pray that You would deepen our faith, that we might give freely, knowing that You who own the cattle on a thousand hills are able abundantly to meet our needs. Father, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song this morning is number 39. The rendering of, a, of uh, Psalm 23 will sing all the stanzas of number 39. Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.